This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Welcome to our last uh, talk in this series on heart disease and health. Uh, and it's my pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Sammy Elmira, um, our speaker tonight. Our other planned speaker, Dr. Uh, Nguyen. Unfortunately, just came down with a, uh, it sounds like a, a bad viral illness. So, uh, but we're very fortunate. Um, Dr. Elmira is here. Um, and I think we'll certainly uh, provide sufficient uh, information regarding valve disease and the topic at hand. So to introduce him, uh, Dr. Elmira attended the University of Pennsylvania for medical school, uh, where he also completed his internship and medicine residency. Uh, then completed his cardiology fellowship in New York City at Mount Sinai Hospital. Um, around that time, he also did an MPH um, in clinical effectiveness at Harvard, uh, and then uh, moved to Harvard to complete uh, a couple of additional fellowships, one in interventional cardiology and another in structural heart disease, the latter um, uh, kind of a subspecialty in some of the most advanced uh, techniques in treating valve disease that are available now that were, as as he might explain, not available uh, not too many years ago. Uh, he was also a research fellow at Harvard Medical School um, and stayed on uh, the faculty there at the uh, Massachusetts General uh, and Harvard Medical School. And we were very fortunate uh, to recruit him here to UCSF to uh, lead our interventional cardiology section. So he's our new interventional cardiology chief uh, and is really a world-renowned expert in uh, valve disease and the treatment of valve disease and, and many of the things he will describe tonight. Uh, so Sammy, I will hand it over to you. And thank you so much, Greg. Well, it's a true honor and privilege to be part of this event. Um, I, as Greg mentioned, am focusing on uh, valvular heart disease, of course, the, the title of the talk today is Heart Valves, What Can Go Wrong? And the Latest Approaches to Making Them Right Again. Um, again, as Greg mentioned, I was supposed to be joined by Dr. Tom Nguyen. Um, he is a cardiac surgeon uh, who was going to discuss some of the surgical approaches. And so perhaps if questions do arise about that that are not uh, addressed in my talk, I'm happy to try to address as many of those afterwards as possible. All right, so why don't we get started? So I want to begin with very basics, the anatomy of the heart. So when I speak to my patients about heart disease, I really present the heart as a house, right? So you've got the structure, you've got the walls, which is the muscle of the heart, but then there are some other uh, components to it. The valves are essentially the, the doors between the four rooms of the heart, and I'll get into the specifics of that in a bit. There is, of course, uh, the electrical wiring uh, that actually uh, synchronizes the functions of the various parts of the heart. And then, of course, the plumbing, which is the arteries that feed the muscle and carry oxygen to the heart muscle and then carry uh, blood, the bluish blood that does not have as much oxygen in it away from the heart muscle. The arteries, of course, are what is uh, most frequently uh, uh, can lead to heart attacks and things like that, which I know have been covered in other talks. But so when we 
talk about the heart valve. So there are four heart valves within the heart and taking them in order in the, in the order with which blood flows. So the blood that does not have oxygen, this is the used blood that, is, that essentially is returning to the heart from the veins throughout your body, um, returns to the heart, passes through the tricuspid valve, which you actually see there between the right atrium and the right ventricle. The right ventricle then squeezes the blood out. It exits through the pulmonic valve where it then heads to the lungs to, to regain oxygen or to pick up more oxygen and then returns back to the heart into the left atrium, crosses the mitral valve, which is on the left side of the heart. Blood passes through that mitral valve into the left ventricle where it is finally ejected back out to the rest of one's body. Um, now, these, these valves are very pliable material. They essentially open and close. They're supposed to open and close normally simply based largely on pressure differences between the different chambers. So when one part of the heart squeezes, it essentially forces that valve to open and pushes blood through. And at the opposite side of that door, what is happening is that that part of the heart is actually relaxing, essentially causing a vacuum that pulls that door open as well. And when it starts to contract, that force on the valve actually forces it to close. Now, several things, but really two fundamental things can go wrong with these valves conceptually. These doors can become leaky. That essentially means that when the door closes, it does not stop blood from moving backwards in that path that I described, backwards to the chamber before it or the room before uh, that valve. So that is what we call a regurgitant valve or a leaky valve. On the other side of things, and one can imagine, uh, again, a, a doorway, a set of double doors, it can also be narrow or stenotic, meaning that you cannot fully open the doorway. And the way I, I like to describe this to my patients is essentially this is a door with busted hinges. So the door is stuck and you simply cannot open it uh, beyond a certain amount. Now, valve disease is fairly common. It becomes more common with uh, increasing age. And in patients over the age of 75 years old, over 13% of adults have significant valvular heart disease. In general, that is mostly um, aortic stenosis and mitral regurgitation. So again, narrowing of the aortic valve or regurgitation or leakiness of the mitral valve. Uh, tricuspid regurgitation or leakiness of the tricuspid valve is also quite common as I will describe in a bit more detail later. And then I've listed mitral stenosis as well, because while it is not common here in the United States, it is something that is common worldwide. And so uh, worth a brief discussion tonight. Now, the gold standard therapy for valvular heart disease is where uh, Dr. Wynn was supposed to be here to discuss some of this. And it is open heart surgery, where the, the surgeon goes in there, he has a surgical, he's got a bioprosthetic or a mechanical valve that uh, can be sutured in place. Or alternatively, the surgeons are also very good at repairing uh, certain valve lesions. So leaky valves in general can be repaired. 
whereas stenotic valve lesions often require uh, replacement of that valve. And it really does not matter which valve issue one has. Open heart surgery certainly provides uh, a potential solution for that valve lesion. In general, this requires, as I mentioned before, open heart surgery, which of course, in most situations is a sternotomy where the chest is actually opened. Although Dr. Wen and, um, and other experts at UCSF uh, can of course provide some of these services via less invasive uh, incisions coming from the side of the heart or even using uh, robotic approaches. But for the purposes of my talk today, I of course am an interventional cardiologist. And what that means is that I like to push catheters into the heart. And what I'm showing here is the schematic of a heart catheterization. This is the more typical heart catheterization that many of you I'm sure have heard about where we essentially advance catheters or these long, thin, hollowed out tubes into the heart arteries and inject contrast in order to see the various arteries uh, and to see what they look like using uh, x-ray machines. And of course, when we find narrowings, we can fix those narrowings with stents. This is where interventional cardiology has really existed over the last uh, couple of decades, but now we are moving to valvular heart disease and learning how to apply these catheter-based approaches to allow us not only to fix uh, diseased heart valves to repair them, but even to replace them. So as we jump into the various types of valvular heart disease, I wanna begin with aortic stenosis. So aortic stenosis, as I, as I mentioned previously, this essentially means that the hinges have busted on that door the valve becomes very rigid and calcified and will not open fully. This essentially is similar to what one feels when you put your thumb over a, a water hose, a garden hose. The water comes spurting out and you can feel that back pressure on, one's, on your thumb. And in a very similar fashion, the heart actually, unfortunately, feels a back pressure and has to work harder in order to eject blood through a smaller opening across that aortic valve. This often results in uh, several symptoms, chest pain or chest tightness, trouble breathing with exertion, and also potentially uh, passing out or dizziness with activity. And this is a valve problem that we often will continue to monitor very carefully with an echocardiogram for years until a patient develops symptoms. And once they develop symptoms, it becomes very important that the valve is replaced or else, uh, or else average survival is only about two to three years if, if that valve is not replaced. Now, again, open heart surgery was the gold standard for this, surgical aortic valve replacement. That's the abbreviation AVR that you see there. Now, this valve problem does occur very frequently in patients that are of advanced age. So uh, free, very frequently we see patients in their 70s or their 80s. And so patients often have, not only because of age, but also because of prior uh, uh, heart surgery or other health problems, they are deemed at very high risk for surgery. So going back approximately 20 years ago, unfortunately in this situation, if I had sent a patient with aortic stenosis, let's say to Dr. Wen, and the patient was elderly, 
let's say had prior heart surgery, had a prior stroke, had kidney disease or lung disease, it is very likely that my surgical colleagues would say, you know what, it, there's just simply nothing that we can do at an acceptable risk level. And so we really had very limited options uh, 20 years ago for patients uh, such as the one I'm describing. And what would happen, unfortunately, is that many of these patients would die. As I mentioned, the average survival is about two to three years. But what I'm showing now is essentially the expected survival, five-year survival, for patients with a variety of advanced cancers. So you see that whether patients have breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, prostate, or ovarian. These are some of the most advanced uh, um, cancers that one is that we manage. And in fi the five-year survival is shown here. And what I want to compare is essentially just to show how absolutely dismal survival is for patients with aortic stenosis if the valve is not repaired. So if you leave that valve alone and you do not operate or you do not fix the valve via other means, only 3% of patients, three out of 100 patients will survive five years. So this really is a life-threatening valve problem that requires urgent uh, intervention. Now, back 20 years ago, uh, and in some patients more recently, we really would struggle with patients such as the one that I'm describing, where we would hope to do anything possible to try to open that valve up a little bit more to hopefully alleviate some of the patient's symptoms. And so what I'm showing here is kind of the first iteration of using catheters in order to treat valve disease. And with an aortic valvuloplasty, essentially what we would do is we would take a deflated balloon, pass it up through the artery in the leg, all the way to the heart, position it right across that valve, and then inflate the balloon. And that would essentially force that door open and try to crack the hinges. Now, as as much as we uh, may have tried, unfortunately, this is not a remarkably successful procedure. It may help minimize patient symptoms for six months, maybe if you're lucky 12, but unfortunately the problem returned. And it is um, each subsequent time this procedure was done, the duration of benefit would drop in half. So very quickly, you can imagine that it really would stop uh, uh, impacting a patient's symptoms, and in general was not performed more than maybe two or three times in a patient. And it would not prolong life and would not, unfortunately, fix the underlying problem. But building upon this concept um, was transcatheter valve replacement or transcatheter valve implantation. This is abbreviated as TABR, and sometimes uh, Tavi, and I want to just show a schematic and I will or a, a movie here, and I will uh, speak through and discuss what's happening. So this is one of the two valve manufacturers that are very commonly used in the United States. Essentially, here we pull a balloon into that valve that is crimped or collapsed on that catheter. We position it carefully, and the reason we, we have this step is simply to minimize how thick that catheter is so that we can actually minimize the trauma to the artery as we're putting it into the, uh, into the artery at the top of the leg. This catheter flexes, 
and as you can see, we're guiding it across the aortic valve over that green wire that we have already placed inside the heart. This valve is positioned right across the diseased aortic valve. And once we are satisfied with the position, we actually will pace the heart at approximately 180 beats per, per minute so that the heart is beating so fast it cannot actually effectively contract and will not eject our equipment out of the heart. The balloon is then expanded. That causes the stent to open. And inside the stent are sutured these brand new, um, perfectly functioning leaflets, essentially a brand new valve. Do not take out the old diseased valve. It is merely pushed aside and is outside that stent uh, that was shown. I believe there may be a cross-sectional uh, uh, image of it here. So you see that valve in place. Again, it's a metal stent. The valve leaflets, which uh, in this situation are cow tissue, are sewn inside it. And as you can see, it's opening nice and wide and the old valve is around, um, is around that stent. On the left-hand side of the screen is another one of the valves that is deployed in a somewhat similar fashion, although without a balloon, that is made out of a, a metal alloy that will actually expand itself when it, once it is put into the body uh, and after we position it into the right place. But essentially both accomplish the same goal. Now, when we think about surgery, which is what is abbreviated here at the top of the screen as SAVR, surgical aortic valve replacement, or TAVI, we've come a long way with TAVI. And to be honest, as you look at these results, they are largely comparable. And so there are um, advantages and, of course, disadvantages to each, each of these procedures. But the important thing is that both procedures help you live longer. Both procedures help patients with this valve problem live better, meaning that it maintains their quality of life. TAVI, of course, is a less invasive procedure. We do this procedure oftentimes without general anesthesia, and patients frequently will go home the next day. And honestly, they will feel great oftentimes as soon as they wake up from the procedure. You see that 98 out of 100 patients are still uh, living two years uh, after this procedure, and that the risk of some of the frequent complications with any catheter-based procedure are thankfully low, with only 2% uh, um, undergoing a stroke or experiencing a stroke, 8% experiencing a major bleed, um, and 8 out of 10 uh, actually do require a permanent pacemaker with this procedure. Now, we have to compare this in the individual patient to surgery open heart surgery, which also, again, as I mentioned previously, helps you live longer, helps patients live better, and provides the advantage of over 50 years of experience. So we know what is going to happen with surgery. And that, of course, is very reassuring to some patients. And so this is a personal decision when one picks one procedure versus the other. Um, and and there are also situations where the physician will very strongly advise that one, one procedure be performed over the other. And some of the considerations are younger age, um, in which we want the valve that is going to last the longest. There may be some anatomic difficulties that make a catheter-based approach more difficult or perhaps even make open-heart surgery more difficult. 
If there are other heart problems, such as blocked arteries or other valves that are diseased, that very frequently will push us towards open heart surgery because the surgeons are very good at fixing everything at once when they are in there. On the other hand, if a patient has many other health problems, they actually may not be um, uh, appropriate for surgery and instead may be uh, more appropriate for a minimally invasive transcatheter approach. And so all patients are different. Um, and there may be certain features about your heart which affect what your doctor thinks is best for your treatment. And so what I'm showing here is an image from the American College of Cardiology. This is what we call a decision aid. Uh, and this is available online. It actually includes the images that I showed earlier uh, on the last slide about the results with surgery and, transcat and the transcatheter approach and essentially allows patients and provides patients with a little bit more information so that they can themselves begin to weigh the risks and the benefits of one procedure versus the other. The Achilles heel, not only of surgical bioprosthetic valves, but also of TAVR valves, is that they do not last forever. And this is exactly why I had mentioned um, that we consider age and a patient's longevity into the decision. Surgical valves have, as I mentioned previously, 50 years of experience. And on average, we know with a fair, about, a fair amount of confidence that a surgical valve should last approximately 15 years. So um, a transcatheter valve, on the other hand, while we've been doing this for about 20 years, we started doing the procedure in patients that were very sick. And so they did not, um, really the valve outlasted those initial patients. The patients had great experience with it. It was based on those initial brave patients that were uh, part of the studies that we performed, the research studies that we performed that resulted in, in TAVR being approved. Um, but we have gradually over the last 20 years started to do this procedure in healthier and healthier patients and younger and younger patients. So we do not yet have a full understanding of how long these valves will last, but we are estimating that they will last approximately 10, uh, eight to 10 years. And then they fail. And that can that fit that failure can do a couple of things. First of all, it's due to either tissue ingrowth into the valve or blood clots that can form on the valves or the initial problems such as calcium and hard mineral deposits can actually form on the leaflets in the same manner or very similar manner as to what happened uh, with the patient's valve in the first place that caused uh, the valve to narrow. And these valves can also become uh, can also become leaky and that can be due to just wear and tear or even infections that can affect the valve. The good news is that when these valves fail, TAVR actually does provide a, a potential treatment option for these valves as well. We can put a TAVR valve inside a failed surgical valve or even inside a failed TAVR valve. The challenge with that, however, is of course, as you keep putting valves inside of valves, each subsequent valve gets smaller in a very similar way as the, the Russian dolls um, that I'm sure you're familiar with and I'm showing here. And so we have to uh, think that you can only really do two TAVR valves in a patient. And so when we think about younger patients, 
let's say we take a 65-year-old. If you have a 65-year-old patient that receives a TAVR, and let's say that TAVR lasts 10 years, then at 75, that TAVR will fail. We'll have to go back in, do another TAVR. So at 75, the patient gets a second TAVR. That TAVR then takes them to 85. My goal is to go is to do much better than 85 for all of my patients. And so I would hope to get all of them to 100. But at 85, after two TAVRs, then what? There's really not another good transcatheter option. And so this is the challenge that we are facing in the field, is that how early can we begin to apply these things? If you think about that same 65-year-old patient, this time put a surgical valve in first. So you have a surgical valve that lasts 15 years, that will take the patient to 80. Then if that valve fails, you can put a TAVR valve inside it, get to 90, put another TAVR valve inside that when, if they get to 100 and they still need to be treated, which has been done. Um, as patients get healthier and healthier and they live longer and longer, we do whatever we can to, to try to maintain a patient's health for as long as possible. But these are some of the considerations that we keep in mind when patients are trying to decide uh, between a chaver valve and a surgical valve. So now that we have, we have done a fantastic job at, at, um, at, at developing these catheter-based approaches to replace an aortic valve, we are now trying to determine how to optimize the delivery of that therapy. And so, as I mentioned previously, we often are, we only treat patients when they develop symptoms. But unfortunately, that is not as simple as it sounds. Currently, we're patients that are older and older. The average age of patients in the initial TAVR studies were over the age of 80 years old. And many patients over the age of 80 have several uh, other health problems. They're not as active, so honestly, they may not be as sensitive or aware of mild symptoms that develop. And because symptoms develop so slowly, many older patients come to me and say, no, I feel fine. When you really push them, they say, well, I've been slowing down, but I know it's just because I'm getting older. And it's not until we actually really push and identify some other symptoms or talk to their family members and come to appreciate that they've actually really slowed down much more quickly. After we replace the valve, many of those patients say, well, I guess I was symptomatic. Um, I guess many of these problems were not my age, but unfortunately they attribute it to age and not the valve problem. But it's complexities such as what describing that sometimes leads to us treating patients a little bit too late. And patients that are treated late unfortunately suffer uh, some consequences such as irreversible damage or permanent damage to their heart muscle. And so what my group, uh, my research group is trying to do is really investigate some low cost methods for optimizing the timing of aortic valve replacement so that we can deliver this therapy at the appropriate time in order to prolong survival, reduce symptoms and improve quality of life we don't want to do it too early since those valves are not going to live are not going to last forever. But we also don't want to do it too late after that permanent damage has occurred. And so we are actually looking at components and metabolites and proteins and essentially things that are floating around in the blood 
that give us a window inside the heart muscle and begin to tell us when the heart muscle is struggling and when that valve should be uh, replaced beyond simply the symptoms. And I will also say there are also clinical studies that are ongoing that are investigating whether we should treat these valves even before symptoms develop, as soon as the valve becomes severely narrowed. So um, that is a hopefully a, a whirlwind tour of aortic stenosis with some historical perspective. I want to shift gears now to one of the most common valve lesions, uh, mitral regurgitation. Now, what I'm showing here is a, a cross-section through a heart. This is a little bit of an anatomy lesson. And the reason I'm showing this is simply to impress upon you how complex the mitral valve is. So we see arrows that point to the anterior leaflet. That's essentially the, the front door of the mitral valve or the, the anterior door and then the posterior leaflet behind it. So those two doors come together uh, and are supposed to seal as I described before. Behind the door is the left atrium and blood is passing through the mitral valve into the left ventricle before it is ejected out of the aortic valve to the rest of the body. Now the aortic valve is simple. It is essentially a round circular doorway that is much easier for us to put a valve inside that structure without impacting anything else. Mitral valve is much more complex and as opposed to a doorway, it is actually more like a pair, an upside down parachute. It is attached to these subvalvular cords, those little strands that you see attached to each leaflet. And so it is a uh, um, infinitely more complex structure that interacts with the muscle itself uh, and therefore has been a little bit more challenging for us to come up with a transcatheter approach to reliably treat it. But I will uh, briefly review what we do have available to us. I also wanna focus on the types of leakiness and essentially a leaky mitral valve can occur because of several potential problems. And again, this gets to the anatomic complexity of this valve problem. So, what you're what I'm showing here is what we call there's a, a heart surgeon and in, in Franz Carpentier who developed this classification. It is essentially based on whether the valve leaflets or whether the valve, those independent doors, are moving normally or whether they have increased mobility or decreased mobility. So there are patients that develop an infection that actually damages the leaflet. Those valves move normally, but let's say the infection has created a hole in one of those leaflets. There are patients that have increased mobility. These are ones that have redundancy in the tissue. So there's extra tissue and the valve actually move, the doorway will kind of move in both directions, almost like a swinging door. And so as opposed to closing and sealing, one of the doors will actually keep going in the opposite direction and cause a leak. There are patients with stiff, uh, um, uh, stiff leaflets where an infection or some sort of uh, inflammatory process has actually caused that valve to thicken. And because it becomes thick, it doesn't open, it, it may not open fully and it also doesn't close fully. Uh, and so those, those patients have reduced mobility of their valve. And then finally, there are also ones that have reduced mobility where the valve leaflets are not the problem, 
but it's that those cords that I told you about, they're attached to the heart muscle. And so in some patients, the problem is actually the muscle and the muscle essentially pulls on that, those cords, almost like pulling on that, that parachute and keeping the door pinned so that it cannot close appropriately. So again, very complex. I wanted to briefly describe this, but the reason this is so important is because the type or the mechanism responsible for the leakiness impacts tremendously what we can do about it. And the two most common causes are what we call primary mitral regurgitation, where the valve leaflet is overly mobile, might be flipping in both directions like a, like a swinging door, um, or patients with what we call secondary mitral regurgitation, where the muscle itself is the problem, pulling on those cords, those strands that are attached to the ends, that are attached to the edges of the leaflets and keeping that valve from fully closing. Um, now, mitral regurgitation is extremely common, present in almost 2% of the US population. Uh, has symptoms somewhat similar to what I described with aortic stenosis. It can cause shortness of breath in a very similar fashion. It can also cause atrial fibrillation or an irregular heartbeat or palpitations. It can also cause swollen ankles or fluid retention uh, and ultimately leads to a weakening of the heart muscle when left untreated. Surgery has really been the mainstay for treating this valve. Uh, having said that, we do have a procedure called transcatheter edge-to-edge -edge repair. There are currently two devices that are approved uh, for repairing the mitral valve, and I'm showing those on the right-hand side of the screen. The top one is the Abbott Mitra Clip, and the lower one is the Edwards Pascal system. Both essentially do the same thing by bringing those leaflets together, and I will show a brief video here. Um, that walks us through it, but we enter into the vein at the top of the leg, not the artery, but the vein. That brings us up to the right side of the heart. We then use a needle to actually cross from the right atrium into the left atrium. So we're essentially going from one side of the heart to the other. We then bring the uh, repair device into the left atrium. You'll see it coming in here shortly, there it comes. And this device is essentially on the, on the tip of a robotic arm is, is an easy way to describe it. And we can move it in all different directions. And that mitra clip device, and it can be rotated. And essentially we want to align it right where the leak is in a perpendicular fashion to how those leaflets are supposed to close. We then advance through the mitral valve and then pull back up in an attempt to grasp the tips of those leaflets, close the clip in order to bring those leaflets together so that when the valve closes, hopefully we allowed for a more complete seal and minimize the regurgitation of blood from the left ventricle into the left atrium. So essentially reducing the leakiness of that valve. And then we leave that little clip behind and remove uh, uh, the rest of our delivery system. So um, this procedure is approved in patients, or at least it, what that means is the, the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, 
has essentially allowed us to use this device in a routine fashion in patients who have primary mitral regurgitation, again, meaning that the valve is too, uh, uh, too mobile, hypermobile, that cannot undergo open heart surgery. So open heart surgery is still the gold standard for this specific valve problem. On the other hand, secondary mitral regurgitation. Again, these are patients where the heart muscle is actually the real problem and not the valve itself, but the muscle, because the geometry of the muscle has changed, it's pulling on that valve mechanism and keeping the valve from functioning normally. Those patients are first and foremost treated with maximal medical therapy. And if that fails, if the mitral regurgitation remains severe, and if the patient remains symptomatic, those patients are best treated with this edge-to-edge, transcatheter edge-to-edge repair procedure. And there are several ongoing clinical trials, um, including uh, two actually at UCSF that are evaluating an expansion of um, the indications for this procedure. Essentially, we are testing whether it makes sense for us to broaden the criteria and the patient population that are appropriate for this procedure. Now, beyond repairing the valve, which is what I just showed you, there are also attempts to replace the valve, similar to what we do for aortic stenosis, similar to TABR. And so there are multiple devices that are under investigation. I'm showing a few of them here. Um, some of these um, have been under investigation now for near over five years. Um, and and I, I mentioned that simply to uh, impress upon you just how complex the mitral valve anatomy is and how difficult it is for us to actually develop a valve that allow that can be deployed reliably and safely in the mitral position. We're making headway and two, actually three of these uh, five valves that I'm showing have actually uh, made a fair amount of progress, but they do still remain investigational. Um, and hopefully one of these studies will end up proving to be positive uh, and favorable for patients in the near future. Now, mitral stenosis, um, this again, I mentioned uh, before is something that is not common in the US, but I do still want to review it briefly. This essentially is a narrowing of the mitral valve that is caused by an inflammatory process that is really due to untreated strep throat or scarlet fever. Um, both of these are caused by uh, infection, by streptococcal infections, uh, bacteria called streptococcus or, um, or group A strep. Um, in the United States, this is a condition that is not common simply because we have access to antibiotics. And so patients in their childhood, when they get these infections, receive antibiotics and are treated fully. But unfortunately, in um, some other countries, I've listed statistics from India, uh, this condition is 100 to 150 times more common than in the United States. And that is unfortunately because antibiotics are less readily available. So in India, in parts of the Middle East, in Africa, um, this is a much more common condition. It causes symptoms similar to what I've described previously with other types of valve disease, shortness of breath, uh, palpitations or atrial fibrillation, stroke, and swollen feet or ankles. And this um, 
is a procedure that has actually been done for well over 20 years. It's called a percutaneous mitral valvuloplasty, where we are essentially putting a balloon across the mitral valve, inflating that balloon and causing the, the valve to open up, again, breaking those hinges. In this situation, this procedure actually works beautifully, um, much different than aortic stenosis, which I described uh, previously. Um, the balloon procedure in this patient population can sometimes actually result in an improvement in almost normal functioning in near, uh, for up to 10 to 15 years. So it does work well in the right patient population. And of course, in patients whose anatomy is not amenable to this, uh, open heart surgery is a preferred therapy. So finally, tricuspid regurgitation. This is what we call the forgotten valve. I say that because we as cardiologists have really up until recently not cared much about this valve. The tricuspid valve is felt to be something that can be managed medically with simply with diuretics or water pills to get rid of uh, some of the excess fluid that is caused by this valve problem. Um, we, I remember learning in medical school that you can essentially remove this valve and that patients can still be managed medically if you completely take that valve out. So we have not, unfortunately, cared nearly as much as we should have about this valve and up until recently have not had any uh, reasonable therapies for it. I'm showing the three types of, uh, of tricuspid regurgitation. Primary, very similar to mitral, where again, the valve itself may not be functioning well. Secondary, whoops, secondary tricuspid regurgitation, where the heart muscle is essentially impacting the ability of that valve to close. And then what we call isolated tricuspid regurgitation, which more and more we're learning is actually due to atrial fibrillation, uh, an abnormal heart rhythm that causes part of the heart to remodel and essentially widens the doorway so, and pulls those doors apart so that there is a gap between them that does not seal completely. Tricuspid regurgitation is present very commonly in the population. Almost, uh, I would say the huge majority of patients have some degree of, or people actually have some degree of tricuspid regurgitation, but greater than mild uh, regurgitation is present in 15% of men, and almost 20% of women. And this amounts to 1.6 million patients in the United States that have moderate or greater uh, tricuspid regurgitation. Now that little sliver is the very small proportion of patients that are actually sent for open heart surgery for this valve problem. So approximately 8,000 uh, patients annually, again, out of 1.6 million, undergo a surgical procedure, open heart surgery, on the tricuspid valve. The majority of those patients are actually undergoing surgery for another reason. So let's say a heart artery problem or aortic stenosis or mitral regurgitation or something else is truly the reason that they're undergoing surgery. But in regards to patients undergoing surgery just for the tricuspid valve, it's less than 500 patients a year across the entire United States. So that's less than 0.05% of that 1.6 million patients. So it really is a severely undertreated disease. And this is despite the fact 
that tricuspid regurgitation does in fact impact patients. Patients are more tired with this. They're less, they have less functional capacity, meaning that they're less mobile, they're less able to exert themselves. Uh, swelling in the legs is very common. Swelling in the abdomen, what we call ascites is also very common. Uh, as opposed to um, what many physicians believe, this valve problem on the right side of the heart can actually cause dyspnea or shortness of breath. And when it gets more advanced, it can actually impact how well the kidneys are working, how well the liver is working. The, it, the swelling can actually permeate into uh, the bowel or you know, the, the intestines uh, and the colon and impact the absorption of nutrients from food. And so this can actually lead to malnutrition um, and ultimately, of course, lead to failure of the right side of the heart and even causes patients to die. So for a valve that we have not paid attention to, there really are several very important clinical consequences. And so it is becoming, this is becoming more and more recognized. And so surgeons are starting to intervene on this valve uh, more frequently. And I've shown here some of the things that the surgeons do to repair the valve and also to replace the valve with a brand new valve. And using catheters, we are also investigating several devices that would essentially allow us to do the same thing, to try to repair this valve via a whole myriad of approaches, or alternatively to replace this valve using catheters. So I wanna highlight a couple of these techniques. So I already mentioned the mitral clip system and the Pascal system. Those are what was used on the mitral side to bring those leaflets together with edge-to-edge -edge repair. We are currently investigating the same devices for tricuspid regurgitation. Um, we here at UCSF are uh, part of the CLASP 2TR trial uh, and have this technology available for patients although it does require enrollment in a clinical study where they would be randomly assigned to either undergo this procedure or to get medications alone. And so this, will, this study will not only test how well this device works, but it's also gonna be very important in improving our understanding of whether treating this valve that people, that physicians used to not think was important, whether treating it actually does truly improve patients' lives and patients' health. We are also uh, part of the TRISEND study. This is uh, a, a clinical trial that is investigating the uh, Edwards Evoke valve. This is a valve replacement technology, and I'm showing a picture of how it sits in the heart on the right-hand side of the screen, but this is a large device that essentially holds onto uh, the disease tricuspid valve. Uh, and replaces its functioning with a, a, a valve that is very similar to what you saw with TAVR inside this construct that I'm showing. And the early results have been very promising, and they've actually suggested that tricuspid valve intervention may reduce heart failure symptoms, may improve quality of life, may allow patients to be more active, more functional, and walk further, uh, and hopefully will also prolong life. But the studies that I've mentioned are the ones that we are very eagerly waiting on that hopefully will be much more definitive in terms of proving how well these procedures work. So to conclude, um, novel interventions are expanding our ability to treat valvular heart disease 
via minimally invasive means that are associated with very rapid recovery. Transcatheter interventions for valvular heart disease are rapidly evolving with several ongoing clinical trials available uh, to patients at UCSF. And finally, transcatheter intervention should be perceived as a complement to surgical therapies that will allow for the comprehensive management of valvular heart disease. So I thank you all for your attention and I'm very happy to take questions. Great, thanks so much for a fantastic talk, Sammy. Um, so we do have a few questions and feel free to add on. And again, apologies uh, for those who joined us a little late, uh, apologies for the shorter than planned uh, stopping time because of uh, Dr. Nguyen uh, having an unexpected uh, illness. Um, so first question is about um, whether, I, I'll, I'm gonna expand on a little bit. This is a fascinating question. Is the tendency to get mitral valve stenosis heritable? Um, so I guess, you know, one way to ask about that is, is genetics, as well as kind of gene environment interactions such as scarlet fever le leading to mitral stenosis. But more broadly, I would imagine many might be curious, why do we, why do we get uh, these diseases? Is there, is there some commonality and are there lifestyle factors that might help prevent uh, the development of valve disease? So that is a very complex uh, and fascinating question. So I will say that the genetics of many of the valve lesions that I've described have been studied. And there is some evidence that suggests that yes, there are some genetic components. So for example, uh, for example, um, there are some abnormalities in the ability of a patient's body to manage certain types of cholesterol that have been associated with aortic stenosis that uh, of course that are genetic. Um, there are abnormalities that are clearly associated, that are genetic and, and clearly associated with my the propensity for mitral regurgitation, for primary mitral regurgitation. Um, mitral stenosis, I must admit, uh, given the fact that it's due to scarlet fever and rheumatic heart disease, I am not as familiar with that, whether there is a, a genetic propensity to develop rheumatic heart disease after uh, those infections in childhood. So that is one that I must ad admit I'm a little bit uh, stumped with. Um, in terms of lifestyle changes, so uh, the causes for each, each of the valve lesions is a little bit different in terms of the cause. So aortic stenosis is develops via a process that is very similar to atherosclerosis. So the blockages that one develops in the heart arteries, the same blockages that can cause heart attacks and the same blockages that can cause strokes are actually, um, can also impact the aortic valve and cholesterol essentially embeds within the valve and that ultimately leads or causes the valve to thicken and not to open well. So the same sort of uh, healthy living habits that one has to reduce the risk of atherosclerosis can also uh, potentially minimize the risk of aortic stenosis as well. Now, mitral regurgitation is a little bit different. Um, again, primary mitral regurgitation is uh, a little bit more of a degenerate process uh, that with some genetic underpinnings. There's not really a lot that one can do in terms of lifestyle management to reduce that. Secondary mitral stenosis, on the other hand, remember, is a muscle problem. And so anything that impacts the muscle, for example, a heart attack, 
or heart failure can lead to secondary mitral regurgitation. And so that again brings back uh, the importance of having healthy, uh, uh, a healthy lifestyle with a low fat diet, um, exercise, things that are good for the heart arteries are also good for the heart muscle. And hopefully we'll minimize the risk that the muscle is impacted in a way that will cause mitral regurgitation. And I would say the same is true for tricuspid regurgitation, although there is a whole slew of things that can cause tricuspid regurgitation. And the main cause of tricuspid regurgitation is actually a valve problem on the left side of the heart. Essentially, the pressure backs up all the way to the right side of the heart, impacting the tricuspid valve. So the sorts of lifestyle changes uh, by, by, that I've mentioned by reducing the risk of aortic stenosis and mitral regurgitation may in fact impact uh, tricuspid regurgitation as well. Great. Are there different considerations in valve replacement for minors with congenital heart defects? Yes. So, I mean, that's a great question. I did not actually talk much about pulmonic uh, valve disease. That is uh, very frequently a uh, congenital issue. Uh, but regardless of what the valve lesion is, patients who require valve replacement at a young age very frequently, again, will receive mechanical valves. There is a procedure for patients that develop aortic stenosis at a very young age called the Ross, called the Ross procedure that actually requires taking one's pulmonic valve and actually putting it into the aortic position and then putting a different uh, prosthetic valve or homograft in the, in the pulmonic position. Um, but that I, I would say is a small fraction of the patients we see. And in general, younger patients are better suited with mechanical valves. Please discuss the major complications of transcatheter aortic valve replacement, immediate and delayed. So, um, I, you know, the, I think the big ones, of course, the big complication of any procedure that we do, of course, is death. And thankfully, the risk of dying with a transcatheter valve, with a transcatheter aortic valve replacement procedure in the majority of patients is less than 1%. Now, that, again, I, I say that generically, um, or the majority of patients, but of course, keep in mind that some patients have some complexities that may change these percentages that I'm going to quote. But let's say there is a 1% risk of dying. There is approximately a 2% risk of stroke. Um, the risk of needing a permanent pacemaker with an aortic valve replacement is in the range of 8 to 12%, depending on the specific valve that one uses. Um, and there are risks of bleeding and other complications at the artery where we actually uh, put the valve in place. Those are all immediate complications, and those are comparable to what we see with open heart surgery, although open heart surgery has a slightly higher risk of stroke, uh, approximately 4% as opposed to the 2% that I quoted. Um, open heart surgery also has a much higher risk of needing a blood transfusion. Of course, when, you, when there's a lot more bleeding with opening up the chest. And so patients that undergo open heart surgery much more frequently require blood transfusions. Now, everything I've, I've mentioned is immediate. We also have to think about the recovery. So with open heart surgery, in general, patients are in the hospital for five to seven days. But even after going home, 
it usually takes approximately two months before a patient begins to feel that they are getting back to where they were before the procedure. And it can take as long as six months before a patient would begin to reap the benefits and actually feel better than they did before. That's with open heart. With a catheter-based approach with TAVR, patients often return home in one to two days. And the only piece that really needs to, to recover or to heal is actually the artery at the top of the leg where we put the valve in. So patients are asked to take it easy for approximately a week, but after that, they are back to their usual lives um, and living their lives to its fullest. And many patients will actually wake up from the procedure and already tell you that they feel that they can breathe a little bit more easily. So the speed with which the benefits are experienced is starkly different and much more, uh, much better with transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Um, but again, that comes at a cost, or not a cost, but an uncertainty, because we have greater uncertainty regarding how long a transcatheter valve will last. Again, we're guessing eight to 10 years versus a surgical valve of 15 years. And so it depends on a patient's age and whether they're more concerned with the short-term or the long-term as to whether which procedure better fits that patient. A uh, question about how these valve issues are diagnosed. So most valve issues are, immediate, are initially detected as a heart murmur. When somebody put, when a physician or doctor puts the stethoscope on the chest, blood passing through these abnormal heart valves will actually cause an abnormal sound that a physician can hear. That's what a murmur is. Um, the murmur then triggers usually an ultrasound or an echocardiogram that will uh, definitively diagnose this problem. Terrific. Well, I think we can end with that. And thank you so much, uh, Dr. Amira, for a fantastic talk. And thanks again uh, to the audience for your time, attention, and questions. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.